Good morning. Um, when I was a boy, every time my family would ask my father what he wanted for Christmas, his response was always the same. He would always say, I just want some peace and quiet. <laughs> he always said it, just peace and quiet. Um, I'm confident that my father, he was, he's a physician. We had three little kids in the house, three young kids, and what he was hoping for, what he was waiting to experience was for things to settle down, to be less chaotic at work and at home. And he was here this morning, by the way, first hour. He's 91, um, still mowing his lawn with a push mower and chopping uh, wood with an axe. Guess what he said he wanted for Christmas this morning? <laughs> I just want some peace and quiet. <laughs> well, and I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now that I'm older, I understand exactly what he meant when he said he was waiting to find some peace. And our series this Christmas season is focused on this concept of waiting for things that are good. Uh, the first week in our series, Barry talked about Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father and how Zechariah was waiting for salvation. Last week, Dave talked about Mary and how she was waiting to see justice. And this week, we'll be talking about waiting for peace. But what exactly the sort of peace we're talking about or that so many of us are waiting for can be hard to pin down because peace is a word that can mean a multitude of things in our world. Um, peace can be, as my father wanted, simply some quiet time in the midst of life's confusions. But we also talk about peace as just meaning the end of a war or when families are having trouble and the feud ends. We even use the word to talk about an, an individual person coming to terms with themselves and we say they have what? Found inner peace. These all mean very different things, and yet the world today is offering us so many opportunities to be overwhelmed or confused or confronted by violence and hostility. It's easy to understand why every December a longing for peace, no matter how peace might be defined, how a longing for peace breaks out in the world. In fact, I'm of the opinion that the entire world is in some way waiting for peace. Now, today we're going to be looking at the biblical passage that is primarily responsible for connecting Christmas time to this desire that mankind has generally for peace, and it's the story of Jesus' birth. And it's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, and why don't we all turn to that? We're going to be looking at it in just a minute. It's on page 581 in the House Bible. It'd be good to have it in front of you. I want to welcome everybody that's online. We know you're out there, and we're glad that you're with us today. One thing I have to bring up before we look at today's story is this, that the world into which Jesus was born had about as many differing ideas about what peace means as our world does. For the Greeks, irene, the Greek word that we always translate as peace, 
It generally meant the brief interludes. They used it to describe the brief interludes between what was a constant in the ancient world, which was times of war. And so when they talked about peace, they were really talking about nations not fighting, that space when nations weren't fighting. And so nations experienced peace, individuals benefited from times of peace, but they never talked about Irene as being something, or Irene, as being something internal like we would. Now, the Romans, they have a word pox, and actually we get our word from, of peace from their word. The Latin word, though, was more of a, uh, how do I describe it? an international relations term, and then it had anything to do with personal lives. What the, have you heard of the Pax Romana or the, Rome, the Peace of Rome? What it actually comes down to was the Peace of Rome was not something that had been worked out uh, where people are reconciling and coming to terms with one another. No, the Peace of Rome was really ending all political and ethnic strife through superior military power. The Peace of Rome was about making everybody else settle down because we're going to squish you if you don't. And so the term pox in terms of the Roman Empire did not necessarily bring a sense of wonder of the quietness of our lives, but more about the fact that we were under somebody's thumb. But for the Jews, shalom, the word that we translate as peace, had almost nothing to do whatsoever with the Greek or the Roman ideas about what peace is. Jewish shalom was an all-encompassing word that spoke to life being as full as it could possibly be. It was a word associated with individual well-being, individual dignity, personal safety, and material abundance and prosperity. People prayed for it for themselves and for, their, for the, one another. And not only was shalom a very different concept from the Greeks and the Romans, it wasn't, it still is actually a very different concept in many ways from our English understanding of peace. And I don't think that I can emphasize enough how important it is that this Jewish concept of shalom or peace should inform our thinking as we approach today's passage because you see, Today's passage is very Jewish, and the desire for this sort of Jewish shalom would have dominated the hearts of, and the minds of every character that we run into in this story. And if we, feel to, if we fail to read this Hebrew understanding of peace, this overall flourishing and bounty into this story, I fear we'll miss most of what the story has to tell us. So with all that said, um, today's passage may be possibly after the 23rd Psalm, the most quoted, read, and recognized passage in all of the Bible. This passage is read, especially in the King James Version, so often during the Christmas season that almost everyone, even the most secular people, has at least some sense of this story. So I'm going to read it. Let's just read it. It's, I'm reading all 20 verses of it, so just... You'll recognize it, but um, we're going to read the whole thing. 
says, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased, with whom God is pleased. And when the angel had returned to heaven, the, heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. And the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now let's admit together here that when we hear this familiar story, we see some very traditional images in our minds. Images that often define what Christmas is for us. You may see a crash, you know, one of those three-sided buildings that's got the roof and the star on the top. You, know, you may see a crash, and in it is, it's full of their animals all around, and there are people kneeling, and you see, we see that immediately. And it's all outside of a busy inn. Or we might envision bright, a bright, shining angel choir singing to the shepherds. And I don't suppose there's anything wrong with these images. They give life to the story. They certainly do. Sometimes, though, I do worry that these images can inform us more. Of, to, of, they lend uh, information to us that makes us think this is what Christmas is about more than the words that Luke gives us, actually gives us. In fact, I've often wondered if it wouldn't be best for us only to study this passage during July, 
when nobody's thinking about Christmas and you're not all offended when I tell you something that has changes your mind about what you've always thought about Christmas. At least at that time, we would be able to separate ourselves from all the traditional images. And that way, we could be more objective with the passage and separate Luke's intended message from our cultural traditions. And I'm not here to bad, I'm not bad mouthing cultural traditions, okay? I'm, I'm not. But I say this because one thing we can be confident about is that Luke had some very specific things in mind when he wrote this passage, and every detail that Luke included in his gospel, even the smallest of details, is important. Because Luke wrote this whole gospel, which includes this story, with two primary purposes in mind. And the first one was that he wanted to show the whole world why Jesus is worthy of honor. Jesus is really special, and he deserves honor. And the second reason that he wrote this gospel was to prove to a man named Theophilus, who was a Gentile, a man who had commissioned Luke to write this story about Jesus. He wanted to prove to Theophilus that Jesus came for all people, Jews and Gentiles like him. And every detail in this gospel is purpose to do those two things. And speaking of details, there are tons of them in this story, and there's a ton we could talk about. I mean, we could talk about whether Luke is a good historian. He puts the story on when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. We could ask the questions about whether he was right on that one, or we could talk about Roman census taking, and why would Joseph take a very pregnant Mary with him on a three-day difficult journey from Galilee to Nazareth, or Galilee to in Nazareth and Galilee all the way down to Bethlehem? Why would he do that? Or we could talk about whether a village as tiny as Bethlehem would even have had an inn. But we're not going to talk about that. We'll talk about that next July, okay? I actually put the answers to those questions in the app. But I do want to assure you, though, that if you carefully examine even those parts of the story, you will find out that Luke is saying some very specific things about why Jesus is worthy of honor and proof that he came for all people. But today, I want to primarily focus on the shepherds because Luke's inclusion of these shepherds gives us proof beyond measure that Jesus is worthy of honor, and that he came to bring peace to everybody. In verse 8, Luke says that there were shepherds staying in the field. Now, I have carefully looked at the debate over whether shepherds were untrustworthy, filthy field hands whose very interaction with sheep made them ceremonially unclean, or if shepherds were gentle, respected overseers of, seers of sheep. And though I understand why some people end up holding the second opinion that they're gentle, respected overseers, overseers of sheep, the position that says that shepherds were considered untrustworthy, filthy field hands whose interaction with sheep made them unceremonially clean is right. 
And it is the position that agrees with history and it ties all of the details of the story together. And it also gives me a picture of people who were certainly waiting to find some dignity and some bounty, bounty and some belonging in their lives. They, these shepherds certainly were waiting for shalom. And I can say this with confidence because we can even find in the scripture a long history of condescension towards shepherds. First evidence is in Genesis 46 where we read this. This is when the Israelites were first living in Egypt, even before they were slaves. And we find Joseph saying this to his brothers. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, that's far away from where the Pharaoh lived, for all the shepherds are detestable, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. And it didn't get much better throughout biblical history for shepherds. Over and over, we see the occupation looked down upon. There are a number of things about handling sheep and having to constantly work outside in the elements that cause shepherds to be held at arm's length, even by their fellow Jews. And Luke's actual language here says that these shepherds lived in some sort of an enclosure in the field. These are rough boys living somewhere near the bottom rung of the Jewish social ladder. And yet, verse 9 says that something that would have been unthinkable to the religious Jews of the time happens. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, the Greek word here that's translated angel is angelos, and it simply means a messenger. Now, we think of this word meaning a bright, shining creature from heaven when we see angels in our mind. That's okay, since he was a messenger who came from heaven. But what this angel was doing was something very earthly. This messenger of the Lord was doing exactly what any first century messenger would have done to announce the arrival of a very important royal dignitary. They would have declared the arrival of the high-ranking person in the most glowing of terms, and you can't get much more glowing than, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. That's saying whoever's coming is really important. All people are going to be happy about this. A Savior is born in the city of David. Now, I'm certain this angel's appearance to the shepherds would have been surprising enough to scare them some. And this announcement made to these lowly shepherds would have been completely unexpected. But I'm unsure that these things alone would have terrified them. When Luke says they were terrified, he literally writes that they were fearfully full of fear. Fearfully full of fear. And what I believed overwhelmed them was that accompanying the angel was what Luke calls the glory of the Lord. And this just isn't some spotlight shining down on the angel, okay? The glory of the Lord was something very different. 
What the shepherds found was that they were suddenly surrounded by the literal presence of God, His glory. God's glory had always been a huge aspect of the relationship between the Jews and God. God's glory was the fire that led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And God's glory was the fiery glow that shined in the holiest part of the tabernacle and later in the temple. In fact, one of the primary reasons that the Pharisees at the time of Jesus' birth were working so hard to make everybody obey all the rules of the law was that they believed if they could just somehow clean up everybody in Israel, then the glory of the Lord would once again return in that holy space in the temple like it had been in the past. That's what they were going for, the presence of God in His glory. And yet, here it was, God's glory, His physical presence shining around a group of certainly filthy, probably ceremonially unclean shepherds in a field on a hillside near the meaningless village of Bethlehem. And I also think I understand why God brought an angel, a messenger, with him to announce Jesus' arrival. Had God spoken to the shepherds directly from within his glory like he did when he gave the Ten Commandments? Go read that story. When God did that, everybody said, don't ever let him do that again. It scared the tar out of them. And if he'd have done that to the shepherds, They'd have never recovered. But even in this overwhelming expression of God's presence, the angel's words were comforting. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. If you listen carefully to the words I just read, you begin to see how they speak to God's intentions to bring peace, shalom to these shepherds. It's all so personal. I bring you, not the world, I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior's been born to you. This will be a sign to you, you will find the baby. It's all so personal, so narrowly directed to these few filthy shepherds. We can begin to sense in this message how the heart of God is drawn to the downcast and the poor. Later in this same book, Jesus would say, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You see, Jesus' father had done exactly this when he celebrated the birth of his son. He invited poor shepherds to join him celebrating the birth of his son in Bethlehem. I'm not certain 
whether the angels knew exactly what was going on that night that they said glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom God's favor rests. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know if God told them what was going on or he just said go. But we do know two things that the angels must have known. One, whatever God was doing, it deserved their praise, and so they praised God. And secondly, the angels knew that these shepherds were, for some reason, men with whom God was pleased. I feel the angels knew this because the details of their message were fashioned to bring peace to the shepherds. Here's what I mean. Had the angels said, now you're going to find the Savior in a temple. This baby's in the temple. Or if he'd said, you will find the baby in the synagogue. Or if they'd even said, you will find the baby in someone's home. The shepherds wouldn't have been welcome into any of those places to see Jesus until they'd first gone through a tremendous amount of ceremonial cleansing. But Jesus was in a manger, in a place where animals were kept. The shepherds were told they would find their Messiah in the one place in their world where a filthy shepherd could be welcome. And again, how like the message of the adult Jesus we meet later in the gospel when he's reaching out to lepers and foreigners and the outcasts saying, come unto me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. To every citizen in Bethlehem, Jesus was simply a poor baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. But to the shepherds, finding this baby in a manger where animals are kept was a sign that God had indeed spoken directly to them of all people. And he had led them to their Savior, their Messiah. And knowing this surely gave them some new sense of peace. Peace. But there's another interesting detail connected to the shepherds coming to Bethlehem that relates to Mary. Because if Mary had just had that baby, she too would have been ceremonially unclean that night. Yet, she and the shepherds were both given the joy of being allowed into the presence of God at a time when the religious laws would have kept them as far away as possible. The shepherds and Mary alone knew they were literally standing in the presence of God's anointed one. Even in birth, Jesus chose to surround himself with others, with people who the others would have avoided. And how like Jesus this is. It's no wonder that Mary kept all these things in her heart. So with all these details in mind, let's take a step back for a moment and ask what effect did Jesus' coming to earth have on the shepherds? First, they were, given a complete, they were given a completely new understanding of how fully God had accepted them. I'm sure that they had some notion of being the children of God simply because they were Jewish. 
but I'm also sure that they figured that God had his favorites and his favorites did not include shepherds. But God had come to them. He had shown them his glory. He had accepted them just as they are. And you talk about a time of ending the waiting to get a new sense of your self-worth. That's what these guys were given. And secondly, God had entrusted them with his message that the Messiah had come. This message ended a time of waiting to find some dignity in the eyes of others. Suddenly, they, they were the eyewitnesses of a great event. They were the ones who could speak with firsthand knowledge about what God was doing among them. Can you imagine who on earth thought that shepherds could ever tell you what God was doing in the world? And here they were. They'd seen it all. Everybody else was left wondering and amazed. And the shepherds were probably given some what? Some Jewish peace. And thirdly, they were given a surrounding of what they'd been waiting for most of their lives. And that was dignity and acceptance and well-being and self-worth and understanding. They were receiving peace. And this is exactly what Jesus still offers us today. This is why Jesus is our peace. Luke's gospel is filled with story after story of Jesus giving unexpected and unlikely people the same kind of dignity, the same kind of acceptance, the same kind of well-being and understanding and self-worth, and he's offering everybody salvation. In other words, he's bringing the world peace. And I'm sure there are many in this room today who are waiting to find this kind of peace. You long to be seen. You long to be given dignity. You long for someone to understand you and to fill your life with the bounty that actually matters. That's what Jesus brings. I am also certain that there are many in this room who can, with the shepherds, tell the story of how Jesus came into your life. And he brought you newfound dignity and acceptance and well-being and salvation. In other words, Jesus has given you peace. This is why the news of Jesus' coming is good news of great joy that will be for all people. Jesus' coming offers each one of us, no matter who we are or where we've come from or what we've done, he offers us an end to the waiting for peace. He offers us the opportunity to be surrounded by the presence of God and to bask in the confidence that he accepts, accepts us just as we are and gives us the ability to rest in the knowledge that in Jesus our waiting for shalom is over. The details of Jesus' coming, even from the moment of his birth, were purposed to show that you that God's eternal intention was to give you peace. 
Jesus would say it clearly later when he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give you as the world gives you, so do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. And so Christmas, the celebration of the coming of Jesus is also the celebration of the beginning of Jesus' mission to be your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord, and your peace. And my prayer is that today you will let him untrouble your heart and end your waiting. And that you can accept the perfect peace that only Jesus can give. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you sent your son with a mission to give us peace. I pray your peace over all of those within my voice. And I also pray, Father, that we will be a community that brings your shalom, your peace into our world in ways that change it and change lives and brings people into the knowledge of how much you have done for each one of us and how much you love us. Thank you in the name of Jesus, amen.